Hello and welcome to University Challenge. Now, this episode's guest is Naina McIntosh, the CEO and founder of Hope Fashion. And um, we recorded this together, like in the same room. It was really exciting. First time I've done it. So you'll hear the audio is a little bit different. Um, Naina talks about what it takes to go from being a Saturday girl at M&S to establishing your own fashion brand. And guess what? She didn't go to uni. Um, there is tons of information in here, loads of great advice and some uh, interesting fun facts like why it was revolutionary for Next to organise their clothing by colour. I really hope you enjoy this episode and if you do, give it a like or share it with someone you love. Thank you. Right, Dana, this is exciting. Tony, I'm excited. <laughs> My first in-person podcast interview. Oh, well, I'm thrilled to be there for you. Yeah, it's, um, well, let's introduce you to people first. So you and I have met through Smartworks Reading. We have, several you. times, yeah. Yeah, um, but for the listeners today and those to come, could you please tell us your name and what it is that you do today? Okay, my name's Naina McIntosh and I'm the founder and CEO of a women's fashion brand called Hope. Excellent. And you're based in? Um, the office is based in Yattington. So we're in deepest uh, West Berkshire in the beautiful countryside. And, um, and more importantly, it's about a 10 minute drive for me in the mornings, uh, which I love, having commuted into London for many years. Perfect. And we are sat in your... Yeah, in our showroom, surrounded show by products. I know. It's just heaven. Which is what I like. <laughs> sat in a nice place which is also about 10 minutes from my house oh well perfect yeah surrounded by beautiful clothes and in good company with a cup of coffee i didn't have to make (laughs) um right so you're ceo of a women's fashion brand Mm -hmm. today um let's go back to when you were at secondary school yep where some of these decisions begin for what we're going to do in the big wide world what was it like for you um, it's a really good question, Tony, because um, I am of mixed heritage, mixed race heritage, so um, which is a mix of Indian and Jamaican. Um, both parents came over to this country in kind of the late 50s, early 60s, so I guess that makes me a first-generation immigrant. Um, or they are, I can't remember how it works, but anyway. And the truth of the matter is I went to a, a local comprehensive school which was a a relatively new build, so it was quite posh and modern at the time. Um, And as far as aspirations were concerned, um, it generally was only going to go one way, and you either had to be a doctor, an accountant, (laughs) uh, a lawyer, uh, and all of those things, which I think today we'd kind of refer to it as kind of STEM, um, science, technology, um, engineering, uh, maths, etc., and it was never, ever going to happen for me because that was just, didn't tick any of my boxes at all. Um, but that was kind of the expectation from home, certainly on my father's side. My mum, I guess, was a bit more relaxed about it. Mm. And I l- often tell this story whereby when I first worked out or had the courage to say to my careers teacher, mm. well, actually, my, my, my father thinks I should think about becoming a doctor, he literally laughed in my face. <laughs> wow, okay. 
And so the day we get a kid from this school into medic into medic to do medicine, yeah. it says we'll have a day off. And where did you go to school? Brown Hills Comprehensive. Okay, is that West Midlands? Yes, it is. It is, right. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So why did your parents want you to go into the professions or why was it important to your dad? I think it was important because they were, I guess, known and credible careers um, for, for one to take. And, you know, having both my parents come over kind of at sort of mid-teens, mm. late-teens who just wouldn't have those opportunities for themselves, I guess in some ways maybe it was kind of foisting certainly his ambition onto <laughs> me. Um, and at no point did anybody say, well, actually, Nina, what are you good at? What mm. do you enjoy doing? Yeah. And let's think about that. Mm. Um, and now I'm 59 and look back, I just think all the things I was doing whilst at secondary school, like making my own clothes, mm. knitting my own jumpers, um, learning how to cook from my mum and my grandmother, mama, mm. um, was, was ticking all the creative boxes. Yeah. But they would never have deemed it to be a career option. It was, yeah. well, that's just what you do. It's just what you do, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, if I had my time again... You know, there should have been something inside of me saying, this is what you should do. This is, if you follow your heart, this is what you should spend your, your life, your working career doing. But A, I think at that age, you don't have, well, I certainly didn't anyway, don't have that self-confidence to kind of no. make those decisions. Mm -hmm. But there was nobody, more importantly, guiding me to say, actually, why don't you think about this? Yeah. And I, I don't mean, it's not about putting blame onto family but in school no one was saying yeah. well actually no you know you're really good at xyz partly because i can't remember doing any of those subjects at school <laughs> apart from domestic science yeah. it was called yeah. when you, my first i think was a pear helene i've oh. never eaten pear since because it was yeah. so disgusting so <laughs> What subjects did you take and how did you get on? Do you, remember? I, you mean for A level? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I did human biology because I yeah. found that remotely interesting because it was um, it was about how the body functions yeah. and I got that. I did English literature, yeah. uh, which I enjoyed reading, and I did history. Okay. Um, so three reasonable subjects, yeah. flunked all of them. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so there was was there a question then about whether you could go to uni or was that ever on the cards? So oh, yeah, I had a place. Oh, right, okay. the Polytechnic of North Wales. Right. And I was going to do communication studies, which right. actually, and I was thinking about this in preparation for our chat, Tony, was probably, and it was a course I seem to recall that I thought about doing um, as opposed to somebody guiding me and saying, well, actually, you're really good at talking, Nina. Yeah. Um, you're, you're good at, I guess, communication, as I see it today. But when I read the course content, it was something I could rem remotely be interested in. Mm. Um, but I wasn't motivated at all. Mm. Um, there was a lot going on domestically. Mm. And now I look back, I kind of realised that, I think that was the hinge of it. And when the BA-level grades came through, I was actually in Jamaica oh. on a six-week holiday um, that I'd part-funded with my parents. 
And the day my A-level results were due, I was staying with my uncle Hilton at the time. And as he went out to the office that day, he said, give me a call when you get your results, darling. And anyway, there was no call coming from mum and dad. So I'm thinking, this ain't good. Mm. This isn't good. And eventually I got a call, and um, which is one of those moments you'll never forget. And my mum came on the phone first because they were on separate phones in those days yeah. you can imagine can't you <laughs> and, uh, and she just said oh darling we, we've got the results she says I think you're going to be disappointed and then my father interjected with um I've had to hang my head in shame today wow. and I'm thinking I'm 5,000 miles away from home it isn't good but no one's died yeah and um and I think from that that moment on I just thought right okay Mm. May not may not have got the A level results I probably should have got. Definitely, I'm not going to the Polytechnic of North Wales to do communication studies in September. Um, but my response to that was, "But don't you dare write me off." No, no, <laughs> <laughs> I know. Um, so then, your dad said that. Mm? Um, what do you do? So you're not going to the poly. You're in Jamaica. Are you, are you coming home? Well, the <laughs> nice thing is, is my uncle arrived who home that evening, and who went on to become a major in, um, figure in my life uh, for many years afterwards. And he got in, and I said, "Oh, you know, this is what it was. It wasn't great." And he just said, "Darling, we'll work something. You'll work something else out. It's just, just don't worry about it." And that's all you needed yeah. to be told at, at that point. So I went back home. Um, a dear friend of mine, so there were three of us who hung around in sixth form. Sally had got her grades to go on to do her degree in maths. Um, Cheryl and I had done badly, so to speak. Um, but Cheryl was so motivated. So she committed us to go to night school. <laughs> oh my God, to finish these A-levels off. Yeah. And, um, and Cheryl did and applied herself and was brilliant mm. and went on to do her degree. Okay. Um, but I... In the nicest possible way, Terry, uh, Tony, I just couldn't be asked. <laughs> so I didn't. Yeah. There was enough. too much going on. Yeah. And I just thought, you know what? No, I'm going to do this another way. Yeah. And at the time, I've had a Saturday job with Marks and Spencer mm. um, since I was 16, which is what part funded my trip to Jamaica. And, and I just thought, well, I have to think about what I'm going to do. So the phone, I did. The day after I got back from my holiday, I went down to the job centre. Yeah. Um, I said, called them. Um, and there was a card to work in a bar. And I thought, well, I've never worked in a bar before, but um, I'm used to customer service, so I thought I'll just apply for that. And the lady who dealt with me was absolutely wonderful. And she just looked at me and she said, have you got bar experience? And I said, no. I said, but I've worked at blah, blah, blah. And she said, um, and I suppose she took me under her wing and she said, no, no, no. She said, I don't, I don't think you should for this job she's actually we've got some vacancies here for temporary staff in the unemployment benefit office yeah. she said why don't you apply for one of those so I said okay so that's what I did oh, okay. so I ended up working in um oh, it was called the UBO the unemployment benefit office yeah. for probably about a year I think but I was earning yeah. and I could get to work um I could walk to work which was easy and um, and they were trying to persuade me to actually go for a career in the civil service. Yeah. And I was thinking I'd rather eat my own head than do this. 
Um, so at that time, um, I remember that the personnel manager at M&S, where I used to work, um, in Warsaw in the West Midlands, was a, lady, a wonderful lady um, called Beryl Brewer. And she said to me, have you thought about the junior management training programme? And I said, no, I hadn't really heard of it. MS at that time had two levels of management training schemes. One was a graduate yeah. entry level and one was a junior A-level entry. Yeah. And she said, I really think you should apply. Mm -hmm. And with her encouragement, I did. And I had to go down to London for a selection board interview. Yeah. Blah, 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 blah. <clears throat> and um, they came back and said, yeah, we'd like to offer her a place. And that was the start of my retail career. And did you have to move to London then? Did you, um, how did that work? I didn't have to move to London, but as a member of the management training team yeah. scheme, you had to commit to be fully mobile in the UK. Okay. So um, my first appointment was in Dudley. Uh, in the West Midlands. Then I think I went off to Stafford and then I went off to Macclesfield. Yeah. Um, and, and, and complete it. And then you kind of do, it's brilliant because what it gave you an opportunity was to do, um, to, to experience all the different disciplines mm. in commercial management, as it was called then. Um, so you'd kind of do a stint on food, you'd go yeah. on to homeware, you'd go on to fashion and, uh, you'd do a stint in the warehouse, in the office, etc. So it was a brilliant um, grounding, yeah. I guess, for a commercial career in M&S. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's what I did, yeah. And you stayed there for how long? Well, I stayed there for a wee while. I, I made the mistake of falling in love with a warehouseman. <laughs> We've all done it now. And um, <laughs> you're not meant to, as a member of management, yeah. you weren't meant to fraternise with the warehouse staff. Anyway, so I just thought, actually, and I think, Tony, I'd probably also worked out. Because I'd had the experience of being um, a, if you like, a what they called a supervisor, a member of the store yeah. team. Yeah. Um, I had a really good relationship with kind of the, um, the big wigs when they used to come and do a store visit. Yeah. So the, the divisional sales manager would come and... And we always had quite good banter, for want of a better way of putting it. Yeah. Then when I moved into management, it was almost as if you had to start behaving in a different way because you were terribly serious and yeah. blah, 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 blah. And I just thought, well, I'm not sure this is for me, really, um, because I didn't feel authentic to myself. Mm. Um, and I also think probably, if I'm very honest, felt I was the wrong gender, uh, the wrong colour and probably the wrong class if that mm. makes sense yeah yeah um, and i just thought no i think i need to be somewhere that's just a bit more interesting yeah and at the time um there was this small fashion label that had just started on the high street called next <laughs> mad yeah, tiny little tiny it was yeah. i mean and, wow. and i'll give you an example um of i guess the arrogance of big businesses and organisations was that um, divisional sales manager Peter Lloyd um, was doing a visit in Wolverhampton which is where I was working yeah. and Wolverhampton had one of the Kendall stores yeah. which is what Vintage. Next moved into. <clears throat> uh -huh. Sorry when the Next label was, um, was set up 
a chain of stores that they bought was called Kendall's, ah, and they I converted see. those Kendall's into next stores. Right. So for some bizarre reason, Wolverhampton had one of the first next stores. Yeah. Peter had obviously heard about next, and he said to me on a visit, he said, he said I see there's a next in Wolverhampton. And I said, yeah. And he said, um, what do you think of it? Well, of course, I loved Next and was kind of spouting off about it, being amazing. And he said, what do you mean? And I said, well, when you go in, Peter, I said, you, it's all done by colour. I said, so if I want to buy the bluebell jacket to go with the bluebell shoes and the scarf and the handbag to match, I said, it's all there by colour. He said, isn't that really confusing? And I said, no. I said, it's perfect. Because at the time, Marks and Spencer, which I think they, they do now, actually, it's all merchandised by commodity. So there's a trouser department, yeah. a shirt department, yeah. or a jumper department. Yeah. <coughs> and I remember him saying to me, well, why do you want to shop by outfit? Oh. I said, because they've done the thinking for me. I said, I just yeah. know it's all going to work. Yeah. And I actually took him across to the shop to explain what I meant. Because at the yeah. time, the way Next organised it, um, all the bays were called carcasses. <clears throat> and you'd have three bays, say, to Bluebell, and you'd have all the clothing, the accessories, the shoes and the handbags and little pigeonholes above the rails. Yeah. Everything was checkerboard presented and then a rail below. Yeah. And I just, and he looked at me as if I kind of landed from Planet Dog <laughs> and I said, no, this is amazing. Yeah. I said, because this is how I want to shop. Yeah. Um, and I guess that started something in my own mind. And mm. I applied to Next. Yeah. <clears throat> um, partly because I knew I needed to leave M&S um, for the reasons I've given and I got accepted and that was it. And what did you do at Next? What was your job? I went in as a floor manager yeah. for a brand new concept called Next Interiors which was um, the brainchild of George Davis and Trisha Guild. So Trisha Guild still has her own label called Designers Guild which is uh. Okay, Specialised yeah. in beautiful upholstery yeah. and fabrics and um, ceramics, yeah. etc. And linens, that was it. And um, so they did a collaboration. So, so if you can imagine, all the principles I've just talked about for yeah. clothing yeah. was applied for interiors. So there were you know, three different colour palettes on the sales floor. Mm. And you'd have the fabrics, you'd have the towels, you'd have the bed linen, mm. even the tableware all to colour palette, which was, yeah. again, just wonderful. Yeah. Um, and the training we had was immense. I mean, we were kind of, I think it was at least a month's training, if not six weeks, yeah. um, which was fantastic. Um, and what I really appreciated about Next was the culture. Yeah. Um, largely female dominance, mm. especially in the stores and in the field team. Mm. So, you know, yes, you know, you had a male retail director at the time, I think, but the main, most of the area managers, district managers were all women. And there was definitely an attitude at Next in the, I'm talking the early 90s, whereby if you were ambitious and yeah. prepared to work hard, the world was your oyster. You could do, you could go wherever you wanted to, really. And I, I think I blossomed in that because I was always prepared to work hard. Um, I was driven uh, yeah. which I've still I've come to realize was probably one of the things that pushed me forward um, and I did that for five years and loved it. And how do you um, go from having like, two of the biggest high street names under your belt to 
having your own brand? Um, well, I think um, post next, <clears throat> there was a small group of people who followed George Davis when he was setting up a new a new label. And um, one of my dear friends at Next, Nick, um, who knew George better than I did, and he said he, resi he resigned and he said, look, I'm going to go. He said, why don't you just come have a chat with him? And um, anyway, I did. And <clears throat> there were about five or six of us that joined George to be, if you like, his field managers. Yeah. Um, so when the brand was going to launch... Um, we were assigned um, by geography stores that we were going to look after and we would be the conduit if you like between the office and the and the stores and that was a tough gig um, because you went from next which as I said to you was very feminine um, in its culture um, to Asda um, which I'm going back to before Asda is kind of yeah. the superpower that it is today. Yeah. Um, and it was a completely different ball game. It was very masculine, very aggressive. Mm. And, you know, you used to flounce up in your little sort of next outfit or whatever it was you were yeah. wearing and then try and negotiate space and location with these burly store managers who clearly mm. thought you were a bit of a waste of time, shall we say. Mm. Um, and... But very quickly, to answer your question, um, George realised that what he'd got in the office were a group of buyers, designers, garment technologists who were tremendously talented mm. but and had been used to doing what they do for a next door yeah. and being very disciplined, as in, you know, it's in terms of allocation of space and how we merchandise the product. But Asta was just another ball game. I mean, it was kind of mm. 7,000 square feet. And to be fair to him, he could get that there was a real disconnect between the way the buyers and designers were planning the collection and its end execution in store. Yeah. And he pulled all of his field teams, only five or six of us, mm. I think, into the centre. Yeah. And, I, and I, for whatever reason, I was given menswear. Yeah. And, <laughs> um, and I used to go into product meetings thinking, what? What am I doing here? Because, you know, I don't know anything about product and design. Um, and quite often when the buyer or designer was presenting their concept for Blue Harbour, or it wasn't called Blue Harbour, um, that's M&S, but anyway. Um, and they'd talk about the packaging and how the garment was going to be presented, you know, folded, whatever. Mm. The person George often used to turn to was me and say, well, what do you think, Naina? And I'd go, oh. me? I'd say, why are you asking me? And, and he said one day, he said, the person closest to the customer around this table is Naina because she's the one that's going out to stores. She's the one that's talking to store colleagues and she's the one that's getting feedback. And you, that's when, for me, suddenly I connected the dots. Yeah. <clears throat> And realised that that's what he wanted from that role. He wanted us to challenge the way in which the collection was being designed. As in, well, that's okay, but is that going to fit into the space? And yeah. how are you going to present it? Um, and that, I think, was the moment I realised I really love um, 
this part because I guess it was like taking <clears throat> if you imagine a store it was almost if you went through the back door beyond the warehouse and further up the food chain yeah you could then see how the collection and the product came to life yeah and what I then started to understand was that there's a whole other ball game to retail here mm. and that was the bit that really interested me mm. so you had to go and create it for yourself that I think that role that we were pulled in to do what what's that 30 years ago mm. I think he, it was in, incredibly innovative of, of George to realize if I want my product mm. to be presented in store in the way that I envisage yeah. I need somebody around the table who can influence that so is he George at Asta yes yes <laughs> Yeah. He's actually, George is a person that exists. It is a person that wow. still exists and is still alive to wow. this day. Yeah. Wow. Um, but what it did for me, Tony, was that it introduced me to the other side of retail, I guess. Mm. Um, a really complex, um, clever, stimulating environment. And then as my career progressed, because I spent 18 years with, with George Davis. Wow. Um, the more I'd be in product meetings mm. and, you know, when the buyers were presenting, it, my input was as, in, as significant yeah. as theirs, shall we say. So I'd be saying, well, this is the amount of space we're going to put it on. This is how we're going to present it, flat pack folded or hanging, I should say. Yeah. Um, and, and I knew that's what I was there to do. Mm. And then I'd also be saying, and so, and so sometimes the buyers would present it within those guidelines and he'd say what do you think and I just say I think it's okay I said but I'm a bit worried about what she going to wear with that what bottom is she going to wear with that top yeah and that's exactly what he wanted you know because yeah. sometimes I think we can get fixated on their beautiful tops their beautiful bottoms but can you wear them together they don't go together yeah. so you know I think that's where to be fair George was brilliant um, because it's how he set his original next doors up and it was always for him about outfit building make right. it easy for her yeah um and therefore my input into products um indirectly uh mm. started to started to come about through that through those meetings so i always say to tony i'm not a designer at all um but i have a really strong point of view about products yeah because of those meetings so you've, you've picked up so much in that you've kind of done that management training path and then you've got uh, experience of what goes on in big, big retail. Yeah, definitely. But what happens outside of that, so mm -hmm. the supply side? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, manufacturing. Yeah, why things are put together, the way they're put together, why yeah. they're displayed the way they're displayed. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> also the relationship with suppliers. I mean, you know, we all... It was always um, in the businesses I've worked in um, where I was exposed to that side of things. It was always about partnership with the suppliers. Yeah. You know, it was never about beating them over the head. Yeah. Um, it was about what can we do together. Yeah. Um, so understanding that respect, I think, was a big part of my education as well. Yeah. How, how do you create your own brand then? Because... I wouldn't even know where to start. I mean, 
you're doing that whole thing. So you are in touch with your suppliers, your sourcing, yeah. you're in touch with your customers because they're coming to mm-hmm. your, mm-hmm. you know, your HQ. Yeah. How did you do that? <laughs> um, it's not, it, it's not straightforward, I guess, is mm. the first thing to say. I mean, first of all, I had, well, you know, I often say I've got a 30-plus year career mm. um, for some of the biggest brands, as you've mentioned. Yeah. Um, my la- The last 10 years of my career was at um, M&S. Mm-hmm. Um, and I loved it for 99% of the time. And mm. I got to 52 mm. and just remember thinking... <clears throat> culturally it wasn't working for me anymore and they've got you back so you've been oh, yeah. away and come back right yeah so the 18 years i did as i said with george davis were was next georgia asda peruna yeah yeah left peruna um <clears throat> largely because george davis and i fell out spectacularly which most people did i did really well to do 18 years yeah. um and we've still we've since kissed and made up which is great <laughs> Um, and that's when the opportunity at M&S came, because Stuart Rose had just gone into M&S as the chief exec. I didn't know Stuart, um, but I put my notice in, I put my resignation in, and I got a call from his office to say, can you come down and, and just have a chat with, with Stuart, who wanted to know why I was moving on. He knew I'd been with George a long time. So we had a chat about that, and then he said, um, so are you planning to be a domestic goddess, or are you actually wanting to work? <laughs> <clears throat> and I said to him, no, actually, I bought peace and land in Jamaica. Yeah. I said, it's been a lifelong ambition of mine to have a home out there. I said, so I'm going to take some time off to do that. Yeah. Um, and he said, great. He said, do that, give me a call when you get back. So I did that for three months. So I went out, blah, 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 another story. Yeah. Um, and then... Had another call and then was off the job. So I went into M&S in February, March 2005, six yeah. months before we got married. Um, not to the warehouseman, I've moved on since right. then. <laughs> um, and, um, and yeah, and then I spent ten, nearly 10 years with them. Loved it, as I said, for the vast majority of it. <clears throat> Culturally, a change of CEO, which you really have to think about because that changed the dynamics yeah. of the relationship. Um, did a huge project that was asked of me um, and at the end of it I realised that number one I just wasn't enjoying this anymore yeah. number two um, I just really felt like culturally I was a million miles away from the direction mm. I felt the business was going in um, and I just said Harvey and I were away um, for Easter in Jamaica and the night before we were due to come home, I just said to him, I'm going to have to go. I said, mm. I really can't do this. Mm. <clears throat> and he said, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, a slight panic in his voice. And I said, I will make myself ill if I mm. keep doing this. I said, I just, there isn't a bone in my body that loves it anymore. Mm. So I negotiated my exit, um, Tony, and left the business six months later. Um, with absolutely no idea of what I was going to do. I think everybody thought I had a plan mm. and that there was a big job that I kind of secretly got stashed away. <laughs> and there wasn't. I mean, I literally finished on the 31st of August 2013. Mm. And I describe it now as my neternity because yeah. I'd had two children very late in life. I was 40 and 41. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Um, 39 and 41, sorry. Um, I had a hysterectomy not long after that. Wow. Um, so it felt like for three years, I'd kind of on consecutively, there'd been a lot going on physically. Mm. And this whole thing about getting, you know, when you get to 50, I often say you start to realise you're more than halfway through. Yeah. And I genuinely started to think about, well, how do I want to live the last third of my life? And it isn't doing this. Mm. So that was what I call my me-termity, because in that sort of 12 months-ish, I did a lot of reading, researching, reflecting, actually. Mm. You know, and I really wanted to understand why it was that I was feeling so uncomfortable with the culture that I was working in. What was it that was making me wanting to withdraw from it mm. i guess um so i started to think about i suppose it came back to my values yeah and that was my starting point okay. it's about um whatever and then I, then a number of people were saying to me Nate, why don't you just set up your own brand mm. and what i realized is that they were actually articulating what had been sat here for about 20 years <laughs> so they were saying it to me yeah. Yeah, in my heart, I knew that's what I wanted. Mm. I just wasn't brave enough, Tony, to say it. Isn't that funny? Yeah. That people can see it within you mm. and can see your, your potential, but it's terrifying, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, it is. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, you know, I just, no, I can't possibly do that. Well, how would we do that? And then you start to chat to a couple of other people who are really encouraging, Amanda in particular, and Harvey, my husband. And... And then you think, okay, well, if we were to do this, mm-hmm. um, what would we call it? Um, and I just remember, you know, I've still got my original um, brain dump. And I kind of, you know, coming back to what's important to me, having done a piece of work on my personal values, and which is on my office wall at home today. Um, and it started with family, friends, love, trust. And I thought, well, that's what it's got to be about. Otherwise, there's no point doing it. Mm. And then I thought, well, where does all of that come from? And it comes from my mum. And her name is Meikle Hope McIntosh. Ah. So that was it. So it's got to be called Hope. Yeah. So in that time of the reflecting, reading and researching, what I identified was, if you like, the brand ethos, the brand culture. Yeah. As in, if I'm going to do this, it's got to fit in with who I am as a person Mm. and I only want to work with people who have those same values who I enjoy working with Mm. Um, and my starting point was 52, 53, going through the menopause, hating the impact that the menopause was having on my body Mm. and thinking well I'm someone who's been in the industry forever and have kind of never had to really think about what I wear because despite only being five foot nothing, I generally would wear whatever I wanted. Yeah. But I was having to think about it much harder because my body shape was changing. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, well, surely there are other women going through this same thing. Yeah. Um, and that's when I started to do some research in the market. Yeah. Um, you know, what's the size of the 45 plus women's wear market mm. uh, as a percentage of the token market? And yeah. she kind of makes up almost 50% of it. Mm. And yet, every clothing brand that is out there generally wants to talk to 20 year olds, 30 year olds. Yeah. <laughs> Who haven't got the money? <clears throat> 
40, 50 plus demographic have. Well, that was that was the icing on the cake because then mm. there was a piece of work, uh, research that came out at the time from JW, JWT um, and it was all about um, the 50 plus consumer mm. and how frankly they've got more disposable income than mm. all of the other sectors almost put together mm. and yet so few in the fashion sector want to talk to her mm. because she's not deemed sexy she's not yeah. deemed interesting and I just thought we need to change that mm. I did see actually saw it on Instagram yesterday and it was a double page spread from a tabloid mm -hmm. saying calm down grandma and it was about uh, Madonna but it was written when she was 32. Yeah. And it was about Kylie Minogue wearing her hot pants. Mm. And she was about 30. Mm. And you do think they've got a lot to answer for. Because uh, they're wrong, for mm -hmm. starters. But, yeah. um So you've kind of built this brand where you do things differently. Mm -hmm. Because you're thinking about what your customer actually looks like. Yeah. Wants to wear. Yeah. Um, how... How did you go about making it um, more appealing for your business? How is it different? Yeah, how is it different from MS slacks, which you're expected to <laughs> Well, that's a really good point, actually. You talk about slacks because um, <clears throat> the thing that the, the word I refuse to feel ashamed is probably too strong. Um, but I think it's really important that we're comfortable when we're wearing yeah. clothes yeah. and I don't think there are many product design meetings where we actually talk about whether she's comfortable no. and I think it's important to talk about being comfortable because I genuinely believe that if a woman is comfortable mm. it helps her confidence yeah. and if she's confident I think generally she moves differently she behaves mm. differently because she's got this yeah. and so for instance um you know, I think we can get really um, snobby about elasticated waist trousers, yes. for instance, back yeah. to your point, ironically, yeah. about slacks. And I think they can be pretty mm. frumpy and unappealing, mm. but every top designer out there does elasticated waist trousers. It's how you do them. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, well, all of my, I, we don't use, there's nothing in my collection that's got a fixed waistband. Um, very rarely do we use a zip yeah. uh, and not often buttons so yeah. these are really easy clothes yeah. to put on um, and why is that important um, a I think it adds to the comfort piece but then it's about the shape of the trouser yeah. it's about the fabrication yeah. it's about the width of the elastic that you might use yeah. and it's about whether so all of our trousers have pockets because I think pockets add yeah. an attitude yeah so when we first surveyed customers, probably about four years ago, I think, and we asked them, it wasn't multiple choice, it was free choice, just to give us a number of words that they thought summed up hope. Mm. The kind of words we were getting back, Tony, were um, design, mm. um, comfort, yeah. comfortable, yeah. and... Um, necessarily colour I can't remember what the other one was and I'm really comfortable no pun intended yeah. <laughs> that that's how our customers see us so I felt from the get-go there was an opportunity for what I would call 
um, well-designed, mm. fantastic quality clothing made with real women's bodies in mind mm. uh, in the best quality fabrics and yarns that we can afford mm. um, put together in a way that makes outfit building easy. And did you at any point have to um, seek investment for the Oh, God, business? yeah. Yeah. How was that then? So you're doing things differently. Mm -hmm. And you said kind of culturally in the great big retail space, you mm -hmm. felt it wasn't geared up necessarily mm -hmm. for, you know, people that aren't white middle-aged men. Mm -hmm. um, how was that for you? Um, I think it, it, it remains to this day the hardest bit of the job I do fundraising um but um I when I was thinking of, of doing this setting up the business I went and had a coffee with Stuart Rose and just said look I'm coming I want to tell you because I'm looking for investment mm. and therefore it's highly likely that someone might say do you know Naina McIntosh <clears throat> can you vouch for her and um in fairness he gave me some really good advice and he just said Naina you can do that he said but my what I think you should do is open your own little black book. He said, you're very well connected. You know a lot of people. He said, you might just be surprised on people's reaction. And I, I hadn't even thought about it. Yeah. And as I was leaving, he said, and um, when you've done your business plan, he says, come and see me. You never know. I might just invest myself. Ah. And he did. Wow. So, and then to kind of go out to other people and say, well, actually, I've got the ex-chairman of M&S yeah. as one of my key investors. Yeah. Um, gives other people confidence. Yeah. And that's what I did, Tony. Uh, yeah. Just ask people, explain the concept, what we were trying to do. And, you know, one of my, um, one of the investors, <coughs> excuse me, from the get-go, Martin, always says, um, I'm investing in you, Nona. And did you find that, um, so something I experienced leaving corporate and going freelance was that, and maybe it comes from yourself, I was able to speak far more peer-to-peer -peer with people than I ever did. When you were in it. In a corporate space. And <clears throat> so did you find that people's response to you was different when you were setting up your own brand versus being part of a larger business? Um, I don't know, actually. Um, I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, I personally find it different. You know, you kind of go to these networking events and mm. previously you'd have walked in saying you were the director of XYZ at Marks yeah. and Spencer. And of course, everybody sits up because yeah. <laughs> you know, whether yeah. you like or loathe it, M&S is still one of the most important brands in the country. Yeah. <clears throat> and now you come in and you go, yeah, I'm the, I'm the CEO of this little women's wear brand called Hope Fashion. Um, but I've got complete belief in what I'm doing and I'm much happier yeah. um, living my life like this than I could ever have been working in the way that I was anyway for sure so it, it kind of I don't know if that answers your question but it kind of compensates in a different way yeah and so you've got two children I do and I have two stepsons as well two stepsons right four children then between you um yeah. now Thinking about what your dad said when you got your A-level results, yep. how has, there's kind of two aspects of the question, how has your experiences informed how you've approached education, university careers with your kids? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> now let's just do that. Let's do one question at a time. Okay. Um, I think um, the thing I wanted more than anything for our children 
was that they had choices. Yeah. Um, so we we sent them to schools that gave them an opportunity to experience so many things. Mm. For ultimately for them to work out what it is yeah. they enjoy doing. And I'll give you a couple of examples. So Arthur um, loved A-level economics. Yeah. Didn't come naturally to him, but he really enjoyed the subject matter and was thinking he'd like to do economics as a degree. And Harvey, who has got an economics degree, just said, not to Arthur directly, just said, oh, Christ, he's really setting himself a tall order here. Yeah. Just because of... Um, I guess the focus that there would be on mathematics in, yeah. in the economics degree, which didn't come easy to Arthur, but as I said, enjoyed, if you like, the subject matter, the outcome of the kind of the world of economics and understanding the whole socio-demographic piece, I guess. Mm. <clears throat> but both of us were determined not to say to him, you mustn't do that. Yeah. Um, and he got there himself. Yeah. And he then decided um he and by talking to his teachers in fairness who were just deeply pragmatic and obviously just wanted him to to succeed and um and he said actually so i think i'm going to think about business and we said yeah absolutely he loves that kind of i suppose that's maybe where he gets the entrepreneurial streak streak from potentially um not that there's any pressure um <clears throat> and He's actually going off to Leeds next week, actually. Um, and he's going to start a, a degree in environment and business with the emphasis on environment. Yeah. And I think <coughs> that's brilliant because I think it gives him an, an in into sustainability, which is where I think the world will go. Um, but he's also got the business piece attached to it, which I think will be really good for his his thinking and, his, and the way he'll approach things. So... I tell you that because it's an example of whereby, as a parent, you could see this potential car crash coming. <laughs> and But we didn't want, I didn't want to put the pressure on him or make that decision for him. Mm. And we kind of just gave advice and left him to his own devices. And he worked it out for himself in the end. And yeah. I think that's, for me anyway, but for us, that's what worked. Yeah. With our daughter, Florence who is uber creative. Yeah. So if you like, I'm doing everything I can to make sure that she really yeah. absorbs that and, and, and kind of takes every opportunity she can mm. to realise her talents. Um, probably because that wasn't an opportunity given to me. Yeah. Um, so she's going, to, she's, um, she's going to take a year out, having done her A-levels this year. Um, and, and it's interesting. And then she will do... Um, an art foundation, a foundation course in art and work out which particular medium she she loves. Yeah. Um, whether that could be graphic, it could be fashion, it could be it could be textile, it could be three-dimensional. So she then, I think, will work out, well, actually, I, I really love this. And that's the way we'll approach it with her, whichever it is. I mean, it would be dead easy for her to feel forced into the fashion side of things for obvious reasons. Yeah. But if she decides that actually ceramics is the love of her life, then that's what she should do. Yeah, yeah that's brilliant. And I'm, uh, I do find it really interesting because I think, like you say, there's some families where it's expected that you must go. You, know, yeah. you must go to the same university or follow the same <laughs> career path. Yeah. 
Um, and certainly with my daughters going to second year of GCSEs, yeah. and it's interesting to hear what she tells me, which may be different to what the school says, but it appears to me that yeah. there's a lot of pressure on, you must do this, and you must do sixth form, and mm. then you will go to, to university. university. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, which doesn't suit everybody. No, not at all. Um, you've got your brand. Yeah. Seven years old. Is that right? uh, six. Six years old. Six years next month. Okay. Um, what's next? I don't. There isn't a plan B, Tony. This is it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, it just you know, it, it's a tough sector. Retail, women's fashion, is tough. Um, but <clears throat> it's one that I love. Um, the more we connect with our customers, the happier it makes me. Yeah. Um, you know, ultimately, we want to build this to be a a global brand. I mean, that's the ambition. I didn't set this up as a bit of a hobby on the side. Yeah. This was always about making this into a big brand. Yeah, that's really exciting. And what would your um, advice be <clears throat> to... Um, someone that wants to build a retail career, maybe, maybe not exactly like yours, mm -hmm. but um, like you say, it's a challenging sector to work in. Mm -hmm. um, what, what would you share as your kind of, you know, pearls of wisdom on making it in retail? I think there's two things I'd say really. One is, I mean, I'm sorry, I don't have the numbers to hand and I probably should, but retail is one of the biggest industries in the mm. country. But I think generally has pretty poor press. Mm. I don't, I'm not sure people come out of school thinking, I want to build a retail career. No. I think people end up in it because it's an easy one to do, a bit mm. like ending up in hospitality. Yeah. <clears throat> so I don't think it has some of the credit that it, it should have. Mm. Um, what I will say is that today there are more opportunities to do something like retail marketing as a yeah. degree. Yeah. Um, or brand marketing and and obviously those routes are very worthy and, uh, and 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 people should think about that but my honest answer would be go out go and experience it go and work in a store yeah um if you can get a placement in a buying office or in an office then do that because as i said in my view when I understood, if you like, the back office side of things, yeah. that's when you realise this is more. This is more than just putting clothes out on a rail in a shop and talking to people. It's much, much more complicated. And um, you know, I've been in it thirty, at least thirty-five years, and love it to this day. Um, but it's also about people, understanding people, and um, you know, you could just as easily do a psychology degree and come into retail afterwards because. It's about understanding customers. Yeah. yeah. And if um, you think about what you have today, so some people, what I think is really interesting is you've done that big, kind of big brand mm -hmm. route. Yeah. And now you've established your own label. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be, you have to immediately start your own label. Yeah. There is value to be gained from like the hard graft. Yeah working out how the industry works? I think um, it's, a, it's a great question, given where I'm at at the moment. I'm, um, there's a programme that I've been working with the producer on, 
um, product providing some industry insight that's mm. due to air next year. Great. Um, and the reason I tell you that is that I then have come into contact in the last three months with um, some young creatives, probably mm. in, um, in age from about 19 to 30. Mm. And what I find, what I've had to stop myself doing, because their raw ambition is breathtaking, yeah. um, their naivety in some instances, is really scary. And what I've had to kind of think about when talking to these young creatives mm. is that balance between, well, that's a brilliant idea, but you've got absolutely zero chance of achieving it, mm. to actually acknowledging the ambition, but then giving some advice as to how they might go about it. Because there's a balance between, um, I guess wanting to do something that's crazy or is kind of, you know, big audacious goal. And if you sometimes if you think about it too hard, you stop yourself doing it. Mm. Because you, that's when you start to put all the reasons why this isn't achievable. Yeah. And I was doing some mentoring sessions on the phone, uh, on Zoom with them last week. And um, I said to one of them that when I set Hope up, bearing in mind I was 52, 53 with 30 plus years behind me, I can remember panicking one day about all the things I didn't know that yeah. I felt I ought to know when you set up a business, you know, whether that's registering the name of the company's house, trademarking the, the brand, finding out the supply base. I mean, it was immense. Mm. And I came across a quote, Tony, at the time, which was, starting your own business is a bit like jumping off a mountain and building an airplane on the way down. <laughs> yeah. And I said, that is what it's like. Because you are generally balancing all these plates, juggling and thinking, I'm going to free fall. Mm. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that there is a real balance between belief yeah. and, and I guess I would say being um, too bullish. And sometimes it's that yin and yang, isn't it? You can't say, right, okay, I can do this. Actually, no, I can't, because these are the 10 reasons why I can't. Mm -hmm. And at some point, you've got to say, right, let's, let, we're doing this, let's go. Let's hold hands and jump. Yeah. <laughs> I love that image. I love that image. <laughs> the beautiful hope parachute. Well, then that becomes, I don't know, a luxury private jet or exactly. something, because we built that on the way down. <laughs> not sustainable, so probably not. <laughs> no, okay, okay. We'll find another way. Um, it's been such a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for that. You're so that. welcome. I hope that's useful to some of your listeners out there in terms of the this ethos of there are other routes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've, you've proven it. So <laughs> that's great. Thanks, Mayna. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to University Challenged with me, Tony Kent, and my special guest, Naina McIntosh. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Thanks again for all of your support so far. And if you really enjoyed this episode, please give it a like or a share. Thank you. Thank you.